James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Undoubtedly, no one would read this passage if wanting to be encouraged. (laughs) One of the important things to consider when examining the book of James is James is writing to the church as a whole. He writes to churches filled with saints who are also filled with unbelievers. And for us, it is often difficult to hear who he is addressing. And the ambiguity is purposeful. James wants to reach those who presume to be right with the Lord, who presume to be in the faith, and wake them up from their deadness of spirit. And he does this by clean and clear rebukes. The scriptures tell us faithful are the wounds from a friend. If that is true, and is it, it is true, how much more are, are the wounds of the apostles? These are true words. These are helpful words. These are gracious words, even though they correct us. And as we go through the book of James, we've been noticing a number of errors which are common, And here James lays out a very common error, looseness of speech. And as we're about to see, this is an error which affects all people. So as we go through today's passage, I want to remind you of the context of of the reading of James. James has addressed issues within the church, and he's specifically going after the issue of false conversion. Uh, If you were here during the Sunday school hour, you may remember the emphasis that was placed on the importance of true and complete conversion. 
And one of the aspects that James focuses on most clearly is attacking the idea that someone could have faith or possess faith and, ha- and it would never translate into any change or any obedience. We saw clearly he said, faith without works is dead. And then he began to expound on the means by which Abraham was justified. He was justified believing in the promise, but the faith or the trust in God's promises had a logical end. It had somewhere where it had to be matured and completed. It had to be resolved or it had to come to fruition and fulfillment by obedience. And so James has put forth earlier in the, in the chapters, as we'll see in a minute, he puts forth the necessity of cleanliness of speech and holiness of speech. And then here, now he's come to the place in the book where he will deal with it in detail. So I want to look at four divisions of these 12 verses. First, I want to look at his emphasis on the requirement for teachers. And many of you think this verse does not apply to you. You hear, don't become teachers, and then you say, check, moving on. <laughs> won't, I won't do that. And James has much more to say to you than that. He is giving qualifications for leadership, but he's also giving, by extension, a correction to those who would ignore the importance of leadership or dismiss the teaching of the word. He then gives an analogy or a series of illustrations and imageries which tell us by implication to put a bridle or a guard upon our mouth. A bridle is, is the headdress and the bit which surround a horse or any other beast of burden which allows the rider to direct its course by just moving a small piece of metal. Uh, and, and then he goes on to describe the nature of the tongue through the imagery of fire. And this helpful idea that the tongue without a guard upon it is like a fire that moves wherever it wishes. And we'll see what he means exactly by that. And then finally, we're going to look at the nature of double speak, blessing God and cursing our brothers made in the image of God. And so at the onset, what I want to show you is that James's moral commands, just as the law does, this is law and gospel, it shows us of our deep need for Christ. One of the beautiful things by the ambiguity that was aforementioned is he addresses issues that concern saints and sinners. That is to say that just because you are walking with Christ does not mean that you never need serious rebuke. Many people think serious rebuke is only for the backsliders or those who are are, are away from the faith. Serious rebuke is actually extremely profitable for the true sons. Hebrews tells us that if we're not disciplined by the Lord, then we ought to question our sonship from God the Father. And so this rebuke from James is profitable. Even though it stings our hearts, even though it rebukes us swiftly, it is profitable. It is corrective and beneficial. So the first emphasis that James gives is this notion that many should not become teachers. James has, in the prior chapters, demonstrated the true evidences of faith which must result in works. 
And we, we put forth the faith of the Reformation, which is the faith of the Scriptures quite clearly and evidently, which is that justification is by faith alone. We come to God apart from our righteousness of our own, putting faith in the promise, just as our father Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him by God. God made an accounting of Abraham and credited it to him as righteousness. Nevertheless, that righteousness was fulfilled in obedience. And we saw through the writer of Hebrews, the writer of you know, Romans 4 in the Apostle Paul's letter, that, Paul, that Abraham was trusting in that promise, and that trust was the motivating energy and foundation and ground of all of his obedience in the light of dire circumstances. The Hebrew writer says that Abraham even considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. That is to say that faith in the promises of God keeps trusting in light of contrary evidence and in light of contrary uh, accusation or, or threat. The word is tested, and the word that is held in the faithful heart is proved. It is not lost. That word is purified. That word is more cleanly and clearly clung to. So, that is James's putting forth of faith and works, but all of that was done in relation to what he set out in the first chapter, that a faith or a religion that does not keep oneself unstained from the world is a dead faith. It is a worthless faith. Likewise, he's also said that in James chapter 1. Exactly as he set out in his introduction, he now warns hearers of the self-deception of claiming religion while speaking evil. If you remember back to uh, chapter 1, when we, we were at chapter 1 in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So what James is doing, and you saw this last week in chapter 2, how he discussed faith and works, he put forth a number of ideas in the first chapter, and now throughout the letter, that's kind of like his outline or his his introduction, and now he's dealing with the issue in specific clarity. James is putting forth an assertion saying, if one does not bridle his tongue, his religion is empty, it's worthless, it's void, it's vain. It's pretense, it has no substance. And now, after making that assertion, he's now going to demonstrate that to his hearers. He's just put forth perfectly the doctrine of the justification by faith, which is evidenced by works. And so now he then warns his hearers of the dangers that attend teaching the church. This is the exact correct position to put this concern. If you were here last week, you remember the precision and the clarity and the necessity of the Holy Spirit to bring the word to bear to Christians' hearts that the scriptures cannot simply be interpreted by anyone, but they should be interpreted in light of scripture, and they should be interpreted according to a faithful church. There are many errors which the Reformation recovered from, the chief of which was the, the, this idea in the Roman church of the magisterium, that the church's officers are the arbiters of what scripture teach, no matter what they say or where they take the, the, the doctrine. But the scripture is very clear. First Peter tells us, excuse me, I think it's Second Peter tells us, the writings of Paul are sometimes difficult. And those who are untrained in them twist them to their own destruction. You cannot simply take the scripture, install yourself as an officer of the church, and then have it mean whatever you wish. 
the scripture must verify itself and it must be very clear to your hearers that it is true and it is integral, it is complete. And this we saw very clearly in James chapter 2. And so right after that extremely precise definition of the doctrine of faith, which is evidence through works, James then reminds his hearers, maybe if you just, you know, heard all of this in the context, it should behoove you to realize that not many of you should become teachers because they are judged with a higher standard of judgment. Verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now here, I do not believe that he has in mind uh, a judgment of at the final day, although I think that might be in view. What I think also is more in view is the responsibility within the church to teach pure doctrine that is edifying and not to be drifting off into issues uh, that concern you. Uh, horror upon horror I saw last night as one church in, in Dallas was inviting, instead of the gospel to be preached tomorrow, for the man known as Sean Hannity, if you've ever heard it, he's going to occupy a pulpit of a Baptist church this morning in Dallas. And woe are we should we ever get to the place where we dismiss the preaching of the word to install a political commentator as the focus of the worship of Christ in Sunday morning services. If, if you think the issues of the Reformation were meaningless or, or, or just issues 500 years ago, they are alive and well today. Teachers are held to a more strict standard. And it's not just God who does that. That is, they are interpreted by their hearers. Churches ought to hold their teachers to a much stricter standard. So, James does not dismiss the importance or goodness of teachers by doing this. He doesn't say not many of you should become teachers because it's not really worth the time. It is actually put forward by the New Testament that teachers are vital and vital in importance, and they are a gift of Christ to his, his body. Ephesians 4 tells us that teachers were given to equip saints. And so, James is saying, not many of you should presume to become teachers or be selfishly ambitious to become teachers because it is a responsibility, it is a charge. Those who seek to minister God's word desire a noble thing. In fact, interestingly, in 1 Timothy, Paul gives Timothy the, the notion that it is a good thing to desire the office of an overseer. It's a good thing when that comes from godly ambition, not selfish ambition. And one of the requirements for that good office is the ability to teach. And so those who do so, those who take on that responsibility, must understand the high responsibility and regard that attends that office. Teachers who, or people who aspire to uh, attain that office must understand the point of what they are doing. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul is about to leave the Ephesian elders, and uh, a wonderful book by the title of The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter is written on this verse alone. And Paul is admonishing the elders of the Ephesian church, and he's saying that they ought to work in that church, they ought to oversee it, and they ought to understand that this is the church that was bought by God and sanctified with the blood of Christ. And he has purchased those people. This is what teachers of the church are dealing with. This is the sort of responsibility that is at work in teaching. So at the onset, I just want to say, not many of you should become teachers. And the corollary to that is some of you should become teachers. 
And I think what James is doing is he's putting forth a vision of the responsibility and the, new, the rest of the New Testament would say yes and amen and here's why some of you should become teachers. Nevertheless, what they are judged upon is the way they speak, what they speak about, the doctrine that they put forth and in very many ways the, the, the words that they speak throughout their life. Christian ministers, according to Paul's instruction to Timothy and Titus, much, must teach with what accords with sound doctrine. Paul tells Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that you observed in me. And so this is, this is the charge, this is the rubric or standard which teachers ought to be held accountable to. Through the word of God, Christian teachers are to encourage the weak, rebuke the rebellious, comfort the grieving, and commend the mature. This is the goal of Christian pastors. Christ told Peter to feed his sheep, and that necessarily includes protecting them so that they're able to eat. And, and this is exactly what I believe James has in mind, this responsibility to teach. The verse prior to Acts 20, 28 is Acts 20, 27, in which Paul tells those same Ephesian elders, you know that I disclosed or declared to you the entire counsel of God. That is at work in the Christian pulpit, or it should be at work. And woe are we if we dismiss the importance of the Christian church and the office of the preacher and teacher should we not held, hold our pastors to that standard. Many churches simply allow their teachers to go off any direction they wish, but I believe that what James is talking about, what the rest of the New Testament is talking about, is there is a responsibility. And if there is that responsibility, then we as hearers, not just we who preach, but also we as hearers have the responsibility to make a godly use of what is being offered in preaching. Preaching is the means by which God converts souls. It is not just the means by which conversion happens, it also is the means by which sanctification happens. Because the word of God is offered up to us in preaching and teaching. And this is what we are judged on as teachers. We are judged on offering up pure doctrine, milk for babes, the, the entire counsel of God. That is what the high and noble vision of preaching is. Some of you are in training to become elders. Some of you should become train, uh, teachers in the future. And you ought to know that this is the vision of the New Testament for the Christian church. It was rightly said in the Sunday school hour, we need a reformation of the church. And I truly believe that is deeply needed. And I also am convinced that that reformation must begin exactly where it began in the reformation 500 years ago, which was a reformation of preaching. Martin Luther, when asked why the reformation was so successful, he said, I did nothing at all. It was the word of God at work. And oh, would that happen in today's churches. So, James therefore warns them of the presumption of speaking on God's behalf. He said, uh, he reminds them of Christ's words, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. James, as we saw last week and earlier in, the, in James chapter 1, he's using portions of the Sermon on the Mount and the other plain, uh, plain teachings or the, the non-parable teachings of Christ in this letter. Astonishingly, James then uses this standard of maturity as the aim and goal for all Christians. So let's just read verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And then verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. 
And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Notice the, the collective nouns at work. For we all stumble many, in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. He's giving a directive to the entire church that not many of them should become teachers. And then he goes on to say the common plight that affects all of them. We all stumble in many ways. And I believe that there's something important to understand by his address of them as brothers and using the collective plural pronoun we. I believe though James speaking as an, the, in the office of an elder or an apostle is including himself in that we. Isn't that interesting? Though we all still sin, the one who has a guard over his tongue is mature. James, by saying a perfect man, does not imply sinlessness. He does not create a vision which you should hear as impossible to attain. He's saying a perfect man, and the rest of the New Testament would say yes and amen. Colossians 1, Paul says, the aim of our faith is to present every man mature in Christ or perfect in Christ. The spiritual maturity brought about by the Holy Spirit's sanctification leads to a restraining of the tongue. James has already commanded this when directing a circumspect life. If you remember to James 2.12, when we discussed the nature of the final judgment, which, which awaits all people, he said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Here, James is reminding us very clearly of Christ's warning. Christ said, on the day of judgment, people will give account of every careless word they speak. Think about that the next time you go to put something into Facebook, to put something into Twitter. If you've ever, I, hopefully you've had the grace of Twitter. I, I love the effect that Twitter has on me when I'm writing the words that go into that small little box because I have 140 characters in which to encode or encapsulate my idea. And one of the benefits of that is that what, what I believe James is calling us to do is he's, he's calling us to put a guard keeper on our mouths such that things do not just randomly fly out, that we use our speech in a very precise and very intentional way. Nevertheless, he says we all stumble in many ways. Therefore, James, by the illustrations that he uses, commands us to bridle our tongue, understanding the danger that we are prone to if it's left un unrestrained. Here he uses two pieces of imagery or two illustrations which, by, by implication, he's commanding us to put a bridle on our tongue. He, he doesn't explicitly do that. I want to be very clear. He doesn't, in these next two verses, explicitly command that his hearers put a guard on their tongue, but through the illustration, it should be clear. He's saying proposition A and proposition B, and then his hearers ought to resolve, just like the chord of a melody line ends in a final note. His hearers are supposed to resolve his meaning. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. If you want an illustration of that, maybe the Burks would be willing to demonstrate that. You, you tug this way and the horse goes that way. Well, you, you, you lead this way. Don't tug it first. The, the notion is this small, tiny piece of metal that's been shoved into the mouth of a horse is able to direct left or right. 
this entire beast of burden, which would be able to throw you off or to stomp you and damage you severely, this entire massive animal is directed one way or the next by a small, tiny piece of metal connected to fabric straps. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Think about that. If you've ever been boating, I, I was astonished one time I got in this, what I thought was a rather large boat. It was able to hold eight people. And the motor on that boat, perhaps it was small, I'm not a, a, a person who understands boats that well. The, the motor and fan that were connected to it was six inches. And it was able to propel this very large boat with a large number of people. And we were able to move forward. And the way that we steered the boat was by moving this six-inch fan blade or fin, whatever you want to call it, left or right a few degrees. This is exactly James's illustration. He's saying that these tiny little things direct the entire purpose and aim of these large, large uh, items, whether it be the horse or the boat. By the use of these two images, James is telling us to set a guard upon our mouths. He's saying there ought to be a pilot who's steering. There ought to be a rider who's directing. And the question is, who should that rider or pilot be? Just as Job made a covenant with his eyes, we must set guards upon our mouths. Job, in Job 31, verse 1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How can I look upon a virgin? He's talking about the righteousness that attends Christian men who ought not to gaze upon the beauty of a woman. He's saying, I've made a covenant. He's made a rule. He has established a pattern or a practice in his life that he does not wish to move from. In the exact same way, James is implying you ought to have a limiter or a governor or a guide upon your tongue. Christian speech, therefore, all speech uttered by Christians, is to be gracious and truthful. Psalm 45 describes the virtue of Christ as one who has grace poured on his lips. And by the implication, if, his, if the grace is upon his lips, then, then his words are gracious. They, they are smooth. They are able to have a, a life-giving effect. Why? is it so important to bridle the tongue? He then, he says, he asserts it plainly in these two verses, three and four, but then he goes on to describe exactly what will happen if you don't. So if you haven't heard the importance of, you're you're like a large animal, a large giant horse, which needs to be directed or else it will go wherever it wishes, or you're like a boat, which is driven by strong winds, pushed around in the sea, unless you are using the rudder the correct way. He then says, to his hearers, if you don't put a governor on your tongue, if you don't live and speak in the circumspect way, here's what will happen. Verse 5, so also, he's, he's referring to those two imageries, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. A fire is extremely profitable when it is contained and restrained. If you've ever had the the joy of sitting close to a fire, you can remember the warmth that it provides, the light, the heat, 
It allows you to cook. It allows you to survive an otherwise terribly cold evening and and night. A fire, when contained, is extremely profitable. One of my favorite memories growing up in in my parents' home was fires in the winter because the, the, the hearth of that fireplace is marble, and you would sit on the very cold marble, and the contrast between the cold marble and the fire was delightful. It was profitable. It was enjoyable. Fires that are contained are profitable. Fires that are not contained are terrifying. Fires that get outside of the fireplace will destroy the home. And in fact, many homes burn precisely not because of an electrical issue, not because of some other mechanical problem or a stove left unattended. They become out of control because there's not proper care for the fireplace. Left unchecked, Fire consumes everything within its path. Right now in our country, there is a giant fire in the places of California, and I think it's spread up to Oregon and maybe Washington. I don't follow the news that closely. But what is happening with this fire, as all wildfires do, is every time the wind changes, it finds new places to go, and the fuel of that fire causes more fuel to be attained. That is, the, the, the logs which are in the fireplace cause the fire to grow such that it reaches outside of the bounds of the fireplace and then, left unattended, it then consumes and begins to eat whatever it finds its path to. I remember a friend of mine had a fire in her home and the fire was actually not that bad. The, the house didn't burn down, but she told me the story when the firemen showed up, not only did they put the fire out and rip the stove away from the wall, they then began to hack into the walls of her home with axes because they were concerned and they needed to verify that the fire had not jumped into the walls. If you ever talk to a fireman, the danger is that the fire will be put out by the homeowner and they think they're fine, but the fire has jumped into the walls and it is unseen and it begins to burn and until it reaches the top of the wall and the attic and the house is consumed. The danger had to be stopped even though it destroyed her kitchen. They had to rip apart the walls and verify clearly that the fire was ended. The tongue likewise reveals what is in our heart. Christ told us clearly that the mouth brings forth the abundance which fills the heart. And if James is right, and he is right, then the tongue, how we speak, reveals what is in our heart. By our sinful use of the tongue, we lie, we flatter, we accuse, and we curse our neighbor. Flattery is, is a lie to our neighbor. It's a commending ourselves to our neighbor that they are in a higher grace or a higher status than they actually are. Bribery is the words that are uttered to get a politician or someone in power or someone with influence to curry favor for you so that they would take some money. All of these things, all the sins of life, for the most part, are uttered, especially social sins, are begun with the tongue that is not guarded. Our tongues give life and give voice to what fills our heart. Gossip, backbiting, complaints, boasting. Have you ever had this experience? If if you've been a Christian for more than a few days, you at least have seen this experience. You go from, in one moment, praying and reading your Bible to something else happens, instantaneous grumbling, instantaneous backbiting and complaining. And this is what James is talking about. He's saying that our tongue is set on fire. It is, it is a ruthless object which, left unchecked, just destroys whatever is in its path. 
James therefore rightly says the tongue is serpentine. If you want a corollary passage to read today, I would encourage you Romans chapter 3, 9 through 20 would be an excellent use for your evening this Lord's day. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, think about Genesis 1 here, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What, what, is, what is the beast that has poison? Is it spiders? They don't have tongues. Is it scorpions? They don't have tongues. They both have poisons. It's serpents. He's saying the tongue is like the first deceiver in the world, the one who came in and lied to Adam and Eve. The tongue that we have is full of poison. In Romans 3, Paul's saying that he uses some, some quotes from the Old Testament. He's saying that both Jew and Gentile, every mouth is stopped. All mouths are shut before God because they're trying to justify themselves with their speech. Yet clearly the scriptures say that all are trapped under sin. And, and the quote that he uses from the Old Testament describes those who are evil as those who use their words like asps, like snakes. An asp is a, is a fancy old English word for a type of snake. If you don't, what I love about the word asps is it has an SPS, and it gives this wonderful sound of the serpentine nature of what snakes are. They're deceivers, they're crafty, they're cunning. James says, that's your tongue. Though we claim to possess life, we are simultaneously just and sinners. Again, since it is the 500th uh, celebration of the beginning of at least the German Reformation, the other reformers were already on their way in some other places in Europe. Nevertheless, Martin Luther had a wonderful formula for Christians. He said that they are simultaneously just or, or in a position of righteousness. They are simultaneously just and sinners. This is important to know, and without knowing that, we cannot hear James's rebuke clearly. James is saying the religion that is held by those who do not guard their speech is a worthless religion. What he's saying is not that they are necessarily outside of the faith. He's saying that their practice of faith, their religion, their external obedience, remember James chapter 2, is not in line with what they profess. And so he's issuing a rebuke that calls people to repentance. Verse 9, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Remember that illustration I gave from your own life that that you might remember if you were were honest or if the Holy Spirit brings it to your memory of a time where you're, you're listening to a Piper sermon. You're listening to a Tim Keller sermon. And then someone opens the door and interrupts you. I'm reading. Don't you see what James is saying? He's implicating you. You're implicated. I'm implicated. We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Verse 10, for from the same, or sorry, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. 
Remember verse 1 and verse 2 of the same chapter, he calls them brothers and he says, we stumble in many ways. I believe James is including himself in this audience. Although I don't think that is the primary important doctrine to get from this verse, it is implied and I think it should be considered James, an apostle who knew the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered with Jesus Christ in the sufferings of the apostles, also stumbled in many ways. That is possibly the only hope I see in these verses. And in fact, this verse selection actually doesn't end well unless you wrestle with the text as we're about to do. Though he writes in the office of an apostle, James includes himself collectively, calling them brothers, using a collective personal pronoun, we. This sin is common among all men, even among God's people. All are guilty, and as Romans 3 says, every mouth is stopped. Every mouth is judged by God's word as being full, as James says, of deadly poison. It is a perverse twisting of religion to bless God while cursing those he has made in his image. That is what I believe James wants to establish in the mind of his hearers, in the hearts of his hearers, as the central ethic and motive for how they can begin to amend their speech so that it accords with their faith. That is to say, James wants to demonstrate why should you not swear? Why should you not gossip? Why should you not backbite? Why should you not grumble and complain? Why should you not murmur? It's because the people against whom you're doing that, they're made in God's image. One of the reasons why there are so many people on this earth is because God loves to glorify his name. And the reason you exist as a human being is not for your own end or purpose. The reason we have fellowship and friendship in life is that we, you and I, are testimonies by our humanness of who God is. The reason why people murder is because they hate God. They destroy those who bear the image of God because they can't actually attack God himself, so they have to attack his image. This is exactly what the law puts forth as the reason why people should not be killed, the reason why if an ox gores a human being, it has to be killed, is because it killed an image bearer of God. That's exactly what James is saying, is the, the speech with, that we use that's like poison, we are attacking God by attacking our neighbor. That is what James is saying. To uphold the first commandment while breaking the second commandment is to violate the spirit of them both. When asked which commandments had to be considered to be the greatest commandment, Jesus did not say the one commandment. He said, this is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The commandments go together. They cannot be divorced from one another. And James says those who divorce the commandments are doing something wrong. These things, brothers, it should not be so. James shows how unnatural this is in his final two imageries that he uses in this passage, in verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? I, I'm reminded of a place in Yellow Springs where I went to walk one time, and there's this spring from which Yellow Springs drives its name, and I took a drink, and it was, it was sweet, but it was also sulfuric. And I just, maybe that's, it wasn't like that when the town was founded, but I had no desire to drink from that spring again. This is what it's like for those around us who we commend God 
and then we attack with our words. They don't wish to hear us. How many Christian testimonies have been stopped by the prior loose speech of the ones who wish to give that? Perhaps you've experienced that in your life. I know I have, where among those in the world or those who I was friends with, I would want to share my faith, but I would immediately remember, oh, yesterday I used a swear word in their company. And, and what did the enemy do through it? He brought guilt and shame. And what I should have done is repented, confessed, and then amended my ways such that I wouldn't repeat that same sin. This is what James is saying. A salt water spring cannot sometimes give off good water and then other times give off salt water. It has to give off one or the other. The spring does not change its source from moment to moment. Likewise, verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He's saying it's against nature. We know that a fig tree brings forth figs. We know that a thorn bushel or a thistle brings forth thorns and thistles. You can't gather grapes from thorns. That's, James is appealing right here explicitly to Matthew 7. By his imagery, James is actually quoting Christ's test for an authentic righteousness. You will know them by your fruits, by their fruits, excuse me. Knowing that the tongue reveals the heart, James then commands us by, by understanding these things, he commands us to a type of repentance of emulating Christ in our speech. Think about the way that Christ spoke to those who came to him. And although he uttered rebukes, he uttered rebukes that were necessary and were as closely uh, packed or, or targeted as possible. It's, it's kind of the difference between the old chemotherapy, which would just inject chemo, radio, radioactive elements into someone's blood or into a particular area, and it would attack the entire system, and hopefully the cancer cells were weaker, to the modern method of now they have these amazing targeted radiations where they're able to focus a beam or enable, able to inject radiation in a particular area where the cancer is. That, or it, it's, it's the complete opposite from what we do with our speech. We often, when we, even in zeal for God, we often use our speech in too broad, broad of a, bro, uh, a brush. We, we use our speech and we, we think we are bringing and encouraging and exhorting, but we often attack in a much too broad way. I think James is calling us to subject our speech to the type of speech which Christ would use. Think about the times where Christ was approached, even by the, those who were trapped in sin and caught in sin. He did utter rebukes, but he uttered rebukes that were short and to the point. If I can, remember that one? Remember the time where someone came and said, Lord, if you will, I am willing. He didn't correct the theology. He said, I am willing. The, the point is that Christ, in his earthly ministry and through his word, he utters rebukes that are clean, that are clear, that are not timid, but that are extremely precise. They cut out what is deathly, they cut out what is gangrene, they cut out what is corrupt and rotten, and they install what is profitable and life-giving, and they close the wound behind. This is exactly what our words should be. This is what I believe James is calling us to do. He's calling us to repentance. But at this point, we're done with our reading. 
All we've heard are indications of sin and demonstrations that our tongues are unrighteous. What's the remedy? Is it just a repentance which seeks to amend one's ways in one's own effort? No, it is not. And this is extremely important as Christians. We must always read the scripture and we must always read it in the context of the rest of scripture. And we, all mo- we also must read it extremely closely. If we have been saved by the word of Christ, then surely our words must also be uttered in his name. While James's words sting, they are gracious. By showing us the dangerous evil at work in our tongue, he is speaking the truth in love with his neighbor. As a man cannot change the source of a stream or cause a plant to bear fruit, and here is where the gospel is in this passage, truly no man, no human being can tame the tongue. That's the gospel. The gospel is your tongue is full of poison. Then the next part of the gospel is you cannot do anything about it. A, B, therefore C. Who can do something about it? Notice what is absent in this passage. James prescribes no remedy in this portion of text, save repentance, which he'll get to in another two passages. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's what to do if you, like I, are marked as unrighteous by James. As he, Jesus Christ, can cleanse lepers, so also he can cleanse heart. In the light of James's words, we ought to join with Peter in begging Christ to wash every part of us. I, I had the privilege of listening to this wonderful teacher, Sinclair Ferguson. He has this 12-part series on John 13, in which he examines verse by verse. And he, he really, by God's grace, by the working of the Holy Spirit through his teaching, he brings you to see what's going on in John 13, where Jesus takes a place at the table, and then he comes up from the table. He dresses himself like a servant, and he begins to wash their feet. And Peter objects, saying, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And then Jesus brings the precise and clean rebuke to Peter. He says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. You see, Peter, like we who hear this sermon today, Peter did not wish to own up for his need to be healed and his need to be served by Christ. Christ had to minister, nevertheless, to Peter. Peter did not want to acknowledge his need, and he also held Christ to some arbitrary standard which said, he's the Lord of glory, he cannot touch me. He's not, I'm not worthy of him to wash me. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no fellowship with me. If the gospel is true, and since the gospel is true, we ought to understand we have to own our sin. We have to own our sin, and then we must hear Christ say, just as he said to Peter, unless you let me wash you, we have no fellowship together. So this is why James is gracious. James is gracious because he calls out those things in us which Christ died to extricate from us. He calls out the inward corruption, the remaining corruption, which if maintained and clung to and avoided from letting the light shine into, if that is is held by us, we cannot know Christ in the fellowship that he offers to us. So what must we do? We must ask Christ, wash every part of me. And Christ replies to Peter, he says, those who've already washed have no need of washing again. And then what does he say? The word that I've spoken to you has cleansed you. 
you only need to wash your feet. I believe that's the vision for the Christian life. Though we claim Christ, though we've been renewed by Christ, though in some measure God has begun to sanctify us and our our life is beginning to resemble the faith claim that we hold, we still are in need from time to time, indeed every day, of having our feet washed by the Lord. And that's what I believe passages like this should cause you to do. It should cause you to, by faith, by God's grace, to repent, to not seek to amend your ways in your own strength, but to seek it by the washing of Jesus Christ and the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what my hope and aim is, that, that through James's shining of his light upon your heart, you would see the issues at work with your speech and that the Holy Spirit would be gracious to come and renew your heart and your tongue. So let's pray. Father, we ask you that James would be for us a a great means of reconciliation, that our lives would amend in the way that we speak to the, the faith that we claim. God, we pray that you would teach us to not be careless with our words. And Lord, as James says, we all stumble in many ways. We know, God, that you are not angry with your people, that you do not uh, punish your people, but we do know that you discipline us. And Lord, we pray that this passage would be for us a great reminder of the preciousness of our words and the gift of speech, and that we would understand that we ought to use our words in a profitable way. Lord, we pray that, that by your grace alone, by the empowerment of your spirit alone, that you would transform our speech such that those who hear it would be profitable to them. We also pray, Lord, that you would elevate our conversation as your word says, our conversation is in heaven, that you would help us to have your word in our mouths and that we would lay up treasures in our hearts by your word and that that would become for us the major subject of our discourse. God, we pray that all these things would come to pass for the glory of Jesus Christ and the sake of his kingdom. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.